the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline. Craig Roberts along with some very special guests today in studio, including Ronnie Habor with Living Waters Village of Borneo and Pastor Leighton Sheely, Senior Pastor at Church of the Highlands in San Bruno. Gentlemen, let's pick up the conversation where we left off just prior to the break. Now, ironically, Scripture talks about sharing the gospel in the Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. Certainly, uh, Ronnie Habor's <laughs> piece of property down there would qualify as the uttermost parts. But if we start with the premise that Judea is at home, it's the backyard, it's El Camino Real in San Bruno, and then we move on from there, then our heartbeat and our passion for missions work should be as, as, as vibrant as it is the desire to want to help the next door neighbor who's just gotten that cancer diagnosis and doesn't know Jesus. Well, you know, I'm I just so grateful to the Lord um, for, uh, you know, for bringing me, for bringing me to Church of the Highlands. And, you know, this is my 40th year at Church of the Highlands. And for, for the most part of it, you know, I, every Sunday I go to church and listen to Pastor Don Shilly, you know, and again, in, in God's timing, uh, you know, Pastor Dan, you know, asked me to be, you know, the mission pastor for Highland. And again, it's just so so amazing. And I'm, I'm so grateful that I get to spend lots and lots of time with Pastor Dan. When we started to do mission in Borneo, the first four years we did, it was just Pastor Dan and I that, that goes. This was the project that we had. It's called Mount Hope. You know, and, you know, we would, I mean, when you sit with Pastor Dan for, you know, 26, 27 hours at a time, you know, you you will learn something. Yeah, something's going to rub <laughs> yeah. off. Yeah. And, and, and so, no you doubt. know, I really, really learned so much from, from Pastor Dan. And, you know, I got his vision for mission. You know, one of the things that is very clear in my mind to see Asadan's passion for mission. One day we were we were in Kuching. We were on the way to church, and we were sitting both of us on the back of a taxi, and everything was just quiet. It, it, it was you know it, 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 it was it was so quiet, and then all of a sudden, you know, Pastor Dan, he just looked up the ceiling of the cab, closed his eyes, he said, "You know, Tony." It must be really, really difficult, you know, for God. Can you imagine the people that are going to be lost? And he just closed his eyes, you know, and never said a word until we got to the church. So you can just feel, you know, his heart, you know, for reaching out with the gospel, 
to the lost. Yeah. And, you know, that really put, you know, an impression on my mind and in my heart that, yes, for whatever time that the Lord gave me, that is going to be my passion. You know, is to go on mission, you know, to bring other people from our church for mission. You know, and uh, and it was actually during those trip, one of those trips that Pastor Dan and I get to meet Ronnie when he just was just getting started with Living Water Village. So, you know, for me, it's, you know, I, uh, you know I'm just like going to burst over, you know, with, with thankfulness, you know, to God, you know, and, you know, and I keep, you know, whenever I, I preach or I, you know, I talk to the young people, you know, I said, just, just remember, you know, the Bible is a very complicated book. You know, theologians have been trying to figure it out for 20,000 to 2,000 years. You know, I, I, I tell them. But, you know, really, it boils down to two things. You know, the greatest commandment and the great commission. Mm-hmm. You know, and so we have this motto with our mission team. It's go love. Because... The greatest commandment and the great commission boils down to those two words: go, love. You know, and you know, and it, it's just amazing what what God is doing. Like you know, Pastor Layton says about some of the young people that have gone on mission and they have seen it. It just totally turned their life around. You know, make make them change the direction of their, you know, like what they want for their future. You know, I was just sharing with Pastor Layton, you know, last night that uh, actually at uh, at lunch yesterday with Pastor Rani, several of the young people, you know, that went on the mission, you know, and saw the needs, especially the medical need, came back and went to nursing and went to medical school, went to take up dentistry, just like that. You know, and and now they are. There's there's already like already have a couple of nurses that have been coming back with me to the mission field mm-hmm. from these young people that in their high school years, you know, they went on mission and God changed their life. I think that capacity to think outside of our own little corner of the world, our own little segment of the world, and to see what God is doing in other places with other people and other cultures. You know, I mean, probably the most oft-quoted scripture, and there was a period of time in the 80s and 90s, if you went to any football game at the 49er Stadium, uh, you would see signs, John 3.16, almost everybody, including the secularists out there, know, for God so loved the world, the world, it takes us beyond our neighborhood our family unit, our own culture, our own uh, roots, and takes us literally to the end of the planet and to begin to even capture a glimpse of the breadth and depth of God's love and the capacity of this gospel message of the story of this Jesus and what he came to do on behalf of all of us that transcends every language, every piece of geography, in every culture, 
for all time is an absolute mind blow. I mean, it's one thing to talk about what you see God do. We had a great service on Sunday. Old pastor just really, he preached up a storm. And that choir, just amazing. Now get in an airplane. Travel half a world away. People that you've never seen, a language you cannot speak, culture that's very different from yours. And walk into that little house church, that little village church, set out in a clearing out in the middle of Borneo or on the plains of, 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 of Africa. And to see that same God impacting change in lives and realize the connectedness that at the end of the day, yeah, we may come from different bloodlines and different cultures and different societies, but at the end of the day, we are all together created in the image of not many gods, but just one God. And we we share that in our DNA. And to capture a glimpse of the impact, the profound impact that this gospel has had down through the millennia, and that he calls upon us to go ahead and pay forward that impact by sharing our faith with others be it getting on an airplane and saying, Ronnie, you're crazy, you can't take your family there, but I'm going anyway because God told me to, to the next-door neighbor that needs to hear an encouraging word because they're facing a crisis of health in their family and they don't know where to turn, and you know that Jesus is the great healer. Pastor Leighton Sheely from Church of the Highland San Bruno, along with Ronnie Habor from Living Waters Village in Borneo. My special guests on this special edition of Lifeline. A brief time out, back with more as the conversation continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline. Craig Roberts along with some very special guests today in studio, including Ronnie Habor with Living Waters Village of Borneo and Pastor Leighton Sheely, Senior Pastor at Church of the Highlands in San Bruno. Gentlemen, let's pick up the conversation where we left off just prior to the break. Now, I want to just kind of have listeners gain a, a perspective on this potential profound impact that each and every one of us can be a part of. Maybe we're not going to get on the plane and go to Borneo. Maybe we're not going to travel to uh, the Ukraine and set up a Bible college. But we go to work every day. We have a word or two with the person at the cash register that checks us out at Safeway or the cubicle mate in our place of work who's going through a difficult time in their marriage relationship right now and God can uniquely give us a word of hope and encouragement you know mm-hmm. to your point Pastor Sheely earlier you were talking about just the desire to make ourselves available and, and for God to to speak in us and through us mm-hmm. doesn't mean that you have to be uh, have the ability to be the perfect apologist and have scripture from Genesis to Revelation memorize and be able to to instantly give a a counter response to the person who's the atheist, who's the Mormon, who's whatever, Mm -hmm. but instead just simply in our faith experience, be bold enough to trust him, Mm -hmm. to go out on a limb, to move beyond our comfort zone, Mm -hmm. and give God an opportunity to love others Mm -hmm. through us. I would imagine this world would look very different if more of us were willing to do just that. I, I, I think it would be great. I, I, you know, I've, I've come to the conclusion nobody's going to 
end up in heaven because they lost an argument. (laughs) (laughs) Well put. (laughs) So, you know, there there are some people who are, they have an expertise for being able to present evidence to support a particular side, but uh, that's a specialty. And, And we as Christians can express our interest in and our uh, concern for others just very simply by you mentioned you know going to the grocery line or whatever the case might be you, you might uh, say to the person across the counter or across the table or uh, on the bus or whatever it might be that you know listen I just want to know that that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm doing something I'm praying for somebody every day and and I was wondering if there's something I can pray for you about and, it, and it's, it's non-confrontational it does uh, bring the attention to spiritual matters, and, and that's important because people just go through day after day constantly being distracted by the things of this world and not the things that are eternal and spiritual and so forth. And it opens up the possibility of uh, somebody sharing. Now, they might reject it. That's fine. Um, but what we have found over the years is that most people, if, they, if somebody offers to pray for them, that, that opens up... A, a, people's hearts you know I, I just found out i've got cancer or my somebody in my family does or whatever the situation might be <clears throat> and gives an opportunity just to to connect with people and so i, I think that that it'd be great if uh christians would and that would that requires getting out of, outside of our comfort zone even just making the initiative is there something i can pray for you about get a little out of our comfort zone and I'll open up people's with people and, and start these conversations that have to do with reality and spiritual reality. It's easy to encounter the waitress who seems to be in a rush, short-tempered, got out of the bed on the wrong side sort of scenario, who maybe got out of the wrong side of the bed because she just learned that her son has been arrested for drug possession and she's beside herself, or that her father has been diagnosed with stage four cancer. And in that instant, instead of criticizing or getting ready to go back to the office and tell your co-workers, boy, that waitress up at XYZ restaurant, (laughs) she was really in a foul mood today. Instead, to stop and say, anything I can, you know, I love to pray. I pray every day. Anything I can pray about for you and watch the heart melt and the attitude completely change instantly. And you may find yourself in one of those Jesus encounters right then and there. Or you may not have a prepared script but God will give you the words right. to bring hope and comfort that could become a life-changing encounter. You know, they often say, well, the problem with some folks who have never come to Jesus is because they've either met a Christian and didn't like the experience or have never met a Christian. How, how many of us spurn the opportunity to be used as a vessel that God can love others through simply because we're either not willing to take the risk, not willing to step out in faith, not willing to allow a little bit of the, the trust factor and, and say, God, I don't know, and I admit that I don't know, but you know everything. So here we go. Roll up our sleeves and dive in. That we're not willing to take those kinds of risks is probably demonstrative why there's so many hurting people out there that are looking for somebody to tell them the good news. Mm-hmm. And here we sit with the answers, and yet 
out of fear, we're oftentimes paralyzed. As our time begins to wind down, Pastor Tony, in, in your years of ministry and in looking at the way in which missions work at Highlands is not a one-time-a-year event. It's not an afterthought. It's literally baked into the DNA of Church of the Highlands. And as you've watched young people go off on missions trips, maybe begrudgingly, and came back with a completely different attitude, how, in your mind, does that impact not only the, the, the ministry of Highlands, but individual lives? The impact is huge because... Um, you know, it's with with the young people. You know, you integrate their parents and their siblings. You know, and their grandparents and aunts and uncles. You know, so you know you you have you have one young lady or young man that come to mission throughout the process. I mean, even before the process, throughout the process, and when they come back, they impact a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Not just their families, mind you, but their schoolmates. If they're working, their co-workers, because now they're able to tell them, I went, you know, and this is what I saw. And this is now how my life is going to be from now on. You know, I, I, had a, I had a young lady that went within one mission field, and then when I come back, the mother came up to me and he said, what did you do with Sarah? <laughs> I said, what? She came what back. With Sarah? <laughs> There's a whole new Sarah. So you know, Pastor Tony, before she went on that mission trip, she has never washed any dishes at home. <laughs> <laughs> when she came back, we were sitting out for dinner. When everybody's done, she started collecting all the dirty dishes, took it, to, took it to the sink, and started washing it. I mean, that's just one. You know, I can tell you many others. You know, I won't have to. But, and, and, and for me, you know, after a few mission trips, then I say, okay, this is not just overseas mission trip. Mission has got to be, you know, a daily thing for me. You know, so, you know, at, you know, at school... Even though I didn't have to do it, but in the morning, and Pastor Layton can told, tell you this, in the morning, three days out of the week, I would come early in the morning, you know, and, and, and greet the student. Just say good morning or mm-hmm. high five mm-hmm. as they come in and also watch, you know, watch the, the traffic, you know. And eventually, you know, we start doing local mission. You know, so now we're involved with city team. You know, actually, you know, in April, Highlands is going to host the fundraising for city team. You know, so it's it's a it's an everyday thing, and again, Highlands is blessed because we also have a school. You know, so we can minister like seven days a week, mm-hmm. you know, because we have, you know, we have the students during the parents during the week, you know, and then, you know, we have the congregation that comes on weekend. And the thing that really very encouraging for me post-COVID at Highlands is that every Sunday I will see parents 
you know, who has children at Highland Christian School start coming to church, mm-hmm. bringing their children to Sunday school, and they coming in, you know, to sit, you know, in the sanctuary. And they've seen what's happening in the life of their student. Yes. Mm-hmm. And they're beginning to notice, like you said, they're washing the dishes. Wait a minute. (laughs) I want to know, what did they say? We've tried for years to try to make that happen. Yeah, I mean, I I, I was, you know, when the mom told me that, you know, my first thing was, oh, my goodness, did she got sick or did something happen to her that I didn't know? But, you know, praise God. (laughs) Well, I want to thank all three of you for being in studio with us today and uh, sharing a a bit of a glimpse of the heartbeat of Church of the Highlands there and and that that sense of Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part when it comes to to, uh, outreach and evangelism. And uh, certainly, Ronnie Habor, uh, the stories, every time you come, you never fail to disappoint. (laughs) More accurately put, God never fails to disappoint. Um, and uh, we want to just continue to uh, to be praying for your ministry and what God is doing and that this um, this miracle that he has wrought in the jungles of Borneo continue for many, many years to come. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Tolerance. It's a term bantied about with great abandon these days, especially by those on the left. Liberals who wish for freedom of expression and understanding for all peoples of all persuasions, hawking all agendas, eh, with the sole caveat that tolerance is tossed unceremoniously out the window when it comes to those deemed by the so-called tolerant left to be intolerant. And by intolerant, they mean pretty much anyone who doesn't tout their party line or embrace their body politics. A new book out that gives us the inside story to this issue of an attempt by the liberal left to silence everyone else. The book is called The Silencing, How the Left is Killing Free Speech. Its author, well-known political pundit, news analyst, USA Today columnist, and Fox News contributor, Kirsten Powers. Kirsten, let's talk a bit about this attack on free speech, coming from kind of an unusual end of the political spectrum. I mean, aren't these the same people, the students of yesterday and the teachers of today, the began the free speech movement on the Berkeley campus in the 1960s? Yes, exactly. And I, I call the people in the book the illiberal left to distinguish them from what I consider just the average Democrat or even your average principled liberal who still really holds firm to those ideas of tolerance and diversity and free speech that you were just referring to. Uh, and, and that's what makes, I think, what they're doing that much more troubling is because on the one hand they're, they still claim to value these things while at the same time they are using all sorts of different tactics to silence the debates to say certain things you know, certain debates are over that we aren't allowed to talk about certain things anymore and if you do talk about them you will be labeled with some toxic moniker that's you know going to make you radioactive basically to the rest of society. And, and how do they live with themselves in the sense, and, and, and you've had a chance to deal with both ends of the political spectrum, both as a reporter and news analyst. There's this sense, I think, that some of them are out there promoting the same kind of stereotypes that they themselves purport to hate. Right. Well, I think that, the, that they are able to do it because they really do believe that what they're doing is a righteous act. They they believe that they have the capital T truth, that they know what is right, and that there really is nothing to debate. And so that they don't they, they don't feel that there is a need to, for example, treat somebody who opposes same sex marriage 
as anything other than a homophobe or a bigot. And and so, you know, even though I, I do support same-sex marriage, I, I recognize that there are people who don't that are people of goodwill. And that, you know, and then the best way to engage people is to... Um, persuasion, uh, you know, rather than coercion, rather than trying to silence them. And the liberal left doesn't see it that way. They really do believe that the righteous act is to just really sort of isolate that person from society by saying, no, you know, you're, you're a homophobe and, uh, you know, we don't we don't even need to talk to you about it. Yeah, the irony is if they believe so strongly in their position, you would think that the notion of civility and honesty and public discourse in the end would allow the, the quote unquote truth to win out. But yet they don't apparently see it that way. And I have to wonder if there is almost a sense of, of compartmentalizing going on here. You, you resided inside of the Clinton administration as a Clinton appointee from 92 to 98 from that kind of uh, viewpoint, from the kind of the side looking out is there a lot of compartmentalization that goes on i don't i i don't think that they really feel a need to compartmentalize because like i said they really do believe that they believe so strongly in what they're doing that they they feel like that they're on the right so-called right side of history or the you know the right side of the issue and and so that they you know there's there's this example this just happened last month of uh uh christina hot summer who's She's an AEI scholar, and she came. She went to Georgetown and Oberlin universities in the same month to speak on what she calls equity feminism. It's her version of feminism, which is different from liberal feminism. And you know, she was treated almost like a terrorist coming to campus. It was, you know, people, you know she had to have security, and they had people there holding signs that they're trigger warnings, so they were being triggered. You know, this is going to cause them some sort of emotional distress and danger and there were signs for a safe room where you could go and and be safe while she's you know on campus talking to the campus republicans about her her vision of feminism and just treating treating differing ideas as actually dangerous you know that that's i think that that is what is it takes it away from just your basic intolerance of uh, I can't hear this. That it's actually posing a danger, and need, and and they try to get the speeches canceled. And if they can't get the speeches canceled, then they try they're very disruptive, um, or they try to delegitimize the speaker by making them seem like they're saying these horrific things when all they're doing is expressing a different opinion. And the irony is that seems to be kind of the, out of the arsenal of uh, of tools that they utilize. Seems to be some of the more popular approaches: stigmatization, uh, delegitimizing as you're saying, sometimes even going as far as, as dehumanizing. Uh, many of your colleagues, some of which um, as, as commentators that appear on other networks, I won't mention MSNBC, uh, make much game of this sport of dehumanizing those that have differing opinions. Yeah, I mean, dehumanizing is a tactic you see in particular towards uh, conservative women or uh, non-white conservatives. So it's basically trying to turn them into, you know, non, non-beings. non You don't even need to take them seriously. And with, with conservative women, they will do it through, you know, she's not really a woman. They don't speak for women. The only women who speak for women are pro-choice Democrats. Um, that they are, you know, Bush in a skirt. Uh, they're all sort of, these, you know, female impersonators. These are some of the, the words that have been used to describe uh, conservative women. Or they objectify them, which is another form of dehumanization, which actually, what is so noxious about this is that it's feminists who have came up with this theory that dehumanize, objectifying women is dehumanizing, and it's actually very effective. It's a very effective way 
to to make people not take a woman seriously. So if you focus obsessively on her body or her looks or what she's wearing, as they did with, for example, Sarah Palin, and turn her into a sex object, then voters start to, you know, not see this person any longer as even a potentially serious person. They just see them as a sex object. And so these are the kind of tactics that they use, even though they say they stand for women. But what I don't understand is, and maybe you can shed some light on this, why do mainstream liberals give give sort of a get-out-of-jail-free card to some of these commentators and, and so-called news reporters who, who use this kind of language? For example, you mentioned about uh, references to people like uh, either Sarah Palin or uh, Michelle Bachman as, as bimbos. I think at one time didn't Ed Schultz even uh, use that yeah. demeaning term uh, directed toward you? And, and, and when it's done, the liberal left seems to look the other way. But can you imagine anyone on Fox News making a reference to, say, Hillary Clinton as the um, Democrat candidate bimbo and getting away with it? No, of course not. I mean, there's a double standard. And at some point, they have started to be shamed by it. And so they have some groups have started to recognize that they have to condemn uh, condemn this when it's happening to conservative women. Though they always kind of do it in this grudging way, you know, like, oh, yeah, I guess we have to, you know, we have to stand up for this. But, you know, they're not. But, but for a long time, they didn't. And a lot of them were participants in it. That's the thing. That a lot of the people who were making the misogynist attacks against Sarah Palin were self-described feminists. So it, you know, it, it, it's and so it's, it's sometimes it's them, and then other times it's sitting by. You know, while Keith Olbermann, while he was you know sitting atop his perch at MSNBC, is doing it. Whether it's Chris Matthews that is doing it, uh, they you know they just sit there and they they don't they they just either ignore it or they um, you know. Maybe we'll find something to complain about now and then, but it doesn't cause the full-scale hysteria that you see, like what you saw, what happened when when Rush Limbaugh had, you know, had uh, called Sandra Fluck, you know, a slut, which he he apologized. Well, actually, I don't know if he apologized, but he was treated as if he had to, uh, you know, lose his show over that, right? You know, and this is one incident versus continuous incidents of liberal men that are completely ignored. What's ironic about this is just how insidious and widespread all this is. As you delineate inside the pages of the silencing, we, we find this approach to, um, again, just the, 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 the closing down of civil dialogue, the stigmatization, dehumanization of the opposition, so to speak, that occurs not only on college campuses, as we referred to a moment ago. It's taking place uh, certainly within uh, politics, within the, the, the Democrat Party. Party. We see it taking place in in the news arena. It's almost as if there's there's no free um, antagonizing zone where actual discourse and exchange of, of ideas can take place anymore without fearful of of suddenly coming under attack or having even your very legitimacy being questioned. Right. I think that's exactly right. Um, yeah, and I just did want to clarify that Rush, I just checked that Rush Limbaugh did apologize to her, which is like one extra step that we don't often see by the, the men, uh, you know, on the left who just are doing this with impunity and are never are never criticized. So, you know, I do think that um, the delegitimizing that's going on, which I get into in the in the book so much, is just is such an effective tactic to uh, to avoid debate uh, to, to to not have to. You know, somebody says something and you don't have to engage them on what they actually said. Uh, instead, you can just pick out 
something about them that other people are not going to like. Other people do not want to listen to somebody who who they've been convinced is a racist. They do not want to listen to somebody who they've convinced have been convinced of is an, is an Islamophobe or you know or a race denier, as they call the people who question the campus rape statistics. And it's just kind of they're neither conversation enders, not conversation starters. It's not encouraging robust debate, uh, and and which is really how we get knowledge in society. Uh, instead, it's encouraging really just just accepting what a certain group of people have decided is the truth, and we're not supposed to question it. Kirsten Powers, our guest today on this edition of Lifeline. We're talking about her new book called The Silencing, How the Left is Killing Free Speech. The new book, by the way, just released by Regnery Press, available at Bay Area bookstores as well as through Amazon.com. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation with Kirsten Powers as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline. Our special guest today, well, you certainly know her as a political pundit, news analyst, USA Today columnist, and Fox News contributor, and now a new book called The Silencing. We're visiting today with Kirsten Powers. Kirsten, you relay an example of how insidious all of this is taking place on college campuses in terms of almost uh, sort of grooming students into this sense of um, of intolerance uh, by talking about um, Lafayette College and, and their so-called called Bias Response Team. Uh, Share this example with listeners from the book, if you would, and then give us a sense of just how widespread is this mentality across campuses in America today? Well, these kinds of things are starting to crop up, and I expect them to probably spread, which is the idea that, you know, if something on campus happens that you feel was somehow offensive, you know, some sort of bias, whether it's a racial bias or, you know, gender bias or something, that you can report people for it. Uh, and that it's treated as if it's uh, almost like a bodily harm that has occurred to you. And this is something that comes up throughout the the book in, in, in various stories, which was particularly alarming to me, which was that, uh, you know, taking offense or even just disagreement or having to see something or hear something that you don't like is really often described as a violent event. That, 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 that's the, the language that's used. I, I talk about the professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara, who physically attacked a pro-life student uh, who was part of a peaceful demonstration and told the police officer when she was arrested that she was, quote-unquote, triggered, which is a word that comes up throughout the book, uh, that, that she was triggered by having to encounter this peaceful demonstration. She shouldn't have to see something like this, that it's... You know, this is supposed to be her safe space. This is a professor, um, you know, who doesn't want to have to encounter a view that she doesn't like and that and treats it just the expression of the view as an attack. And so this is the mentality that we have that is spreading, which is which is that, you know, in that case, that's an outlier. Usually it doesn't involve somebody physically attacking somebody. The response, but there, there are other ways the person is then silenced because... You know, they say, "Well, I just, I, I can't. You know, I just, it, it was, I can't, I can't see that. I can't hear that. I can't." Just, you know, the irony is, is that you, when you, breakdown. when you put this in context, for those of us that are old enough to remember, a, a lot of the new liberalism today, whether it be on college campuses or in the mainstream media, sounds like a lot of the old McCarthyism of the nineteen fifties. Yes, yeah, very similar. And it's there's yeah, there's an aspect of who you talk to also. Uh, is is indicative of, of who you are versus what you say or what you think. And I experienced this actually when my book came out, when 
uh, I gave excerpts of the book to various publications, including the Daily Beast, which I write for and is considered, a, a, you know, left of center, but also to a publication at the Heritage Foundation, which is conservative. And because of that, I had all these liberal lefties coming after me saying that I, you know, because I had allowed the Heritage Foundation to run an excerpt that I, you know, that that just proved that I was a right-wing hack and my book was <laughs> somehow backed by the Heritage Foundation. Some, you suddenly you're a shill, shill for the left, or for the right, right rather. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but, but never mind that, like, I ran excerpts in the Daily Beast. You know what I mean? It doesn't, it's just, they, they just look for some kind of relationship that they can use to prove that you're a secret, you know, closet conservative. I have a bunch of examples in the book of how they really use this against journalists to scare journalists to into not pursuing stories because they will be accused of being closet conservatives because they are investigating the Obama administration or they're investigating Republicans. But if they investigate, uh, you know, the, the right the, the right people, then uh, then they're going to if they investigate Republicans, they're going to be fine. But if they investigate Democrats or not. So you'll have people like Cheryl Atkinson who award-winning investigations of both parties, but all you'll hear about from the liberal left is how she investigated the Obama administration and therefore she's this, she's literally this partisan uh, you know, conservative hack. You know, the irony is this agenda, though, just bubbles so 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 uh, close to the surface, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, for example, uh, Chris Hayes recently did what he called a Hillary Clinton study guide for millennials, where he touted all the wonderful things that she apparently had done before most of them, quite frankly, had ever even been born. And yet, can you imagine if, say, Fox News attempted to do a, a new millennials guide to Ben Carson, what, what, what kind of response you would see from the left? Right. Well, that's total double standard. I mean, you can't. There, you know, there's this idea that uh, you know they spent all this time. I have a whole chapter on it, trying to delegitimize Fox News. Uh, the White House did, saying you know they're not a real news organization, and uh, and and telling other news organizations that they shouldn't treat them as real news organizations. And meanwhile, MSNBC is doing this times a million, you know, and, and I'm not, I actually, I think MSNBC is free to do that. I don't, and if, and if, the, and if George Bush had ever come out and said they weren't legitimate, I would have been the first person to defend them. You know, I don't, I think that they, they're, they're, they're free to, you know, have, have whatever kind of programming they want to have. And, uh, and I, and I don't think that that means that, you know, if Chris Hayes does something on one show that, uh, you know, a reporter or a host of another show is somehow held accountable for that, right? I mean, like, the same way, like, they try to merge everything at Fox together. It's like, well, because there's Sean Hannity, then that means that Brett Baer can't be trusted. Well, those two things have nothing to do with each other. You know, they're completely different shows. And, um, and one is an expressly an opinion show. And so, yeah, there's, just an, there's an absolute double standard where you had Obama administration officials leaving and going to work for MSNBC after the same people who said that Fox was not a legitimate news organization. Help us understand something here. Um, how much of this, in your opinion, is, is just based on that sense of unfamiliarity breeding contempt? In other words, that it's easy to either dislike or hate what you don't know or don't understand. So many people, particularly for the, the, the political world inside the Beltway, don't have an opportunity to really get to know, quote unquote, the enemy or the other side. And so as a result, because of that, that sense of ignorance, we'll call it, uh, that, that, that they sort of have this 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 deepening abiding sense of acrimony shown toward those who don't share the same opinion yeah yeah i think that there's I, I, there's definitely an element of that it's very hard to sustain these the, the these ideas for example that 
every single person who opposes same-sex marriage is a homophobe if you actually have friends or people that you're close to who have sincere religious beliefs that lead them to oppose same-sex marriage and, and you can see you know that they they aren't homophobes I'm not saying that the person's never a homophobe but I'm just saying that that's you know that that at least in my experience, the people that I know, that that's not what's driving them. What's driving them is a religious belief. So I do think there's that. Um, but I don't, the, the problem with the liberal left is they really aren't interested in, in knowing people who are different than them. And they, because they are so convinced that they are right, that they, it just does not seem to have occurred to them that, uh, that they could be wrong. But, you know, I used to be pretty close-minded, and I was definitely, you know, I've worked in the Clinton administration, Democratic politics, very liberal family, and uh, I had a lot of these, these ideas as well that I had it all figured out. And basically working at Fox News and, and then later in life conversion to Christianity where I started being around, obviously, a lot of Christians and more conservatives, uh, you know, it did slowly break down my my prejudices, frankly. I mean, they were prejudices uh, where I could, you know, I didn't necessarily change my political views, but I was able to see, oh, you know, there is a debate to be had here. Uh, there are things to talk about, and, and these are legitimate views. They're just different than mine. So at the end of the day, while it's it's often kind of surprising to see how closed-minded so many so-called open-minded liberals really are, there is hope. And, 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 and I think sometimes the opportunity to the degree to which it's possible, and I'm just thinking about people that are engaged in the day-to-day business of going about uh, their affairs, to engage with people mm-hmm. in a loving, legitimate intellectual fashion concerning the issues of the day, not with heated exchange and raised voices, but just just an, an open-minded exchange of ideas can sometimes eventually bring people around to another point of view. I think so. Yeah. It's, it's often slow, so I think people get discouraged. Uh, you know, I think it's not, it's not like you're going to meet somebody one time and that's going to happen, but I do think over time, and I've had a lot of friends tell me that, it's, you know, knowing me also has changed their views on some things or even, you know, they have their, their ideas about what a liberal is like or what a liberal thinks. And, and you know, and so I think, you know, it's been beneficial in both directions. Well, the book certainly is very engaging in helping us to not only better understand what's taking place here, the dynamic between the two sides, so to speak, but also, I think, uh, gives us a sense of hope that we can engage in some dialogue and eventually see some change. Kristen Powers, the book is called The Silencing, How the Left is Killing Free Speech. The book, published by Regnery Press, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com. And, of course, Regnery Press, a part of the company that owns this fine radio station. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to KFAX.com. That's KFAX.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.
Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.